Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, so before we get into this episode, I wanted to give a little context. This 27th interview edition of Music Is Not A Genre is with an old colleague and friend of mine, Joe DeLuca. Before we got together for this, we hadn't talked in a good 25 years, so we had a lot of catching up to do. And I usually do the catching up offline outside of the interview context, but because so much of our relationship was tied up in the music work that we did together, a lot of that catching up happened during the course of the interview. Now, those of you who are just listening, you may already know that I do a video version of every single episode of Music Is Not A Genre, and when I do interviews, I use the free version of Zoom, because MXG is a bare-bones operation. Uh, Hint, hint, if you subscribe to Patreon, uh, I could maybe spring for the monthly Zoom subscription as well, but back to our context here. The free Zoom version, you may know this has a strict time limit. It used to be one-on-one was unlimited, and now it's 40 minutes. So what I usually do is I schedule two 40-minute sessions, which gives us an opportunity to have at least a good hour of solid interview time after editing. I take some pride in usually being very good at time management, but Joe and I got into it so much that both of the 40-minute sessions were cut off. Mid-sentence. I was able to edit fairly seamlessly the middle, but you'll hear at the end of our talk me rushing to say goodbye. It was such a great conversation that I then called him after and we spoke for another hour. There were so many things that we didn't get to that I wanted to follow up on so many ideas that he brought forth that I really wanted to unravel that I think maybe a second interview is warranted next year. I don't know. So keep that in mind as you listen. Also, since Joe is a musician, engineer, and producer, I wanted to showcase his work more so than for my other guests so far. Anyway, so the structure of this episode will be a little different from other interview episodes. It's going to start with a song of Joe's, and then at the midpoint, where the audio version usually has a commercial break, there will be another song of Joe's, and then at the end, I'll showcase a song Joe and I worked on together because I did quite a few recordings at his studio. So enjoy it. And if you think of anything you'd like me to follow up on with Joe, then sign up at Patreon, send me a message, and I will include your question in Joe's follow-up interview. Now let's get to the episode.
Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Music Is Not a Genre, the interview edition. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. Don't forget, you can support this podcast and my band, Rec, at patreon.com slash music is not a genre. Quick break. This is a great time to get in at Patreon because my band, Rec, just released their brand new compilation album, Rec Collection, The Best of Rec, 2007 to 2020. And not only do you get everything that people get on Bandcamp, you get so many exclusives, behind-the-scenes information and photos and things that no one else in the world will ever see. So please consider doing that. You can also support the audio version of this podcast at anchor.fm slash music is not a genre. My public hub is youtube.com slash Nick DiMatteo. Or visit my website, nickdimatteo.com, and sign up for the free newsletter where you can learn about all this. Don't have to hear me talk about it. And last and most important, please go to recarea.bandcamp.com. Rec is spelled R-E-C, recarea.bandcamp.com, where you will get the new album and about a dozen other albums to boot, including some of the stuff that I recorded with my guest today, Joe DeLuca. Joe, and I'm pulling up my notes here because I did not prepare them. Joe is a producer, engineer, musician whose recent credits include Abstract Geometry by Kurt Bach and songwriter Jeff Ealing. Joe's been writing and performing for over 40 years. He owned and operated Why Me Recording, fabulous South Jersey studio from 1983 to 2018, working with well over 600 bands. He has two albums of original material, the self-titled Creamsicle Spiders and Matson DeLuca's After All This Time. You can find out more about him at joedelucaproducer.com, and I will have all this information below as well. Joe, how are you doing? Hi, Nick. How are you? Okay. Really good. It's so great to talk to you after so long. Yes. Uh, the the old days at Wyoming Recording when we first met, and now uh, here we are, what, 25 years later, and uh, still alive and kicking. Yeah, damn right. Still still kicking and working. Uh, that's right. And uh, that kind of goes into my normal first question, which is, how do we know each other? Well, I believe... There's two angles there. Uh, one was we had this uh, the same entertainment lawyer, Bernie Resnick. I don't know if Bernie recommended you to me to come record or you came to me and then we realized that Bernie was our lawyer. Like it has something to do with that connection. Okay. Is Bernie still doing work? He is. I don't know what exactly, but I'm in touch a little bit with his wife, uh, Sally. Yeah. And it seems like he's still doing pretty much the same thing. More behind the scenes, yeah. I mean, he basically just did like a couple little contract things for me. If somebody, you know, a record company needed something in writing or, you know, or uh, a couple of the bands that I played in, he shopped for me back in the day. But that's been a long time. So I haven't really talked to him for a while, but he was a good good guy. And Sal- I, I went out to dinner with him and Sally a couple of times out in the city and stuff. And uh, good good guy, you know, always, always full of information and, and uh, getting right to the point. Yeah, he was a good guy. Yeah, I should I should try and contact him again, see what he's up to. Yeah, he popped in my head the other day, too. I was thinking I was going to give him a call because he's probably still got the same number. Oh, wow. I didn't think of that. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, well, and I know I have his email address, too. I, I should definitely look him up. And I forgot that he was connected to this. I, I was trying to remember how did I first start working with you? Because there were some musicians I knew. I worked in the I, I was doing piano in the pit for this local production of Greece. And I kind of brought those musicians in to record an EP at your place, but I could not for the life of me remember how I was referred to you. So. Yeah. I, I can't remember if it was a, a mutual musician or if Bernie hooked us up or whether you just 
heard of the studio and just called me and I said, Hey, I got time and come on down. That's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. I know. I, I was trying to think of the same thing when, you, when, when we got in contact about doing the, the podcast, I couldn't put it together either, except Bernie just kept popping in my head. So I thought maybe it had something to do with Bernie. It's funny. You should say popping into your head because I, you know, the older I get, I'm learning to trust those things because sometimes something will pop in that seems like it's unrelated or isn't an answer or is just a, ref like a you know tangent and i realized that's probably the answer it's staring me in the face like why else would it pop up in my head you know well one thing i do when i get those whether it's a music thing or just a friend or you know whatever situational thing if i think of somebody 10 years ago i would have went oh you know i wonder how they're doing now i actually text them you know it's just like i just say hey how, how how you been like what's going on? even if it's a friend you know that i i speak to on a regular basis and for some reason they pop in my head i figure i, I just had a, a sad story i just had a friend pass away if you look on my facebook page you'll see, you'll see a guy playing a uh, accordion my friend kevin he was a graphic designer um web designer a uh, great bass player trumpet player he was heavily involved in the uh bugle corps he, he wrote music for Bugle Court and he lived down the street from me and he designed my first website. And years ago, he had come in with this metal band called October that I had been working with and he was playing bass with them. And he, he had real long hair like mine at that point. And, and he was in full heavy metal, you know, garb and all that. And uh, it's like in the early 90s. And I mentioned that I had an accordion. I had a piano tuner that, that said, you know, that he fixed accordion somehow and he ended up giving me an accordion. So he goes, oh, I, I play accordion. And we're all like, yeah, right. So I hand him the accordion and he and he goes into this ripping version of She's Too Fat for Me, Polka. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're all in the studio just cracking up. You know, I mean, there might have been some smoke in the room. Like, who knows? Um, <laughs> but sure. we're, we're laughing. It was just like a funny thing. And, and, you know, back then there wasn't any cell phones or, you know, nobody videoed it or anything like that. So when I decided to move down to the beach in 2018, I was calling people and I was giving away some some gear that wasn't really going to sell or, or items in my house. You know, people were coming over. I was like, oh, do you like that painting? Take it. Do you want this? Because I was kind of minimalizing. So I called him. I said, would you want this accordion? He's like, well, I really don't have use for it. I, you know, I'm not something I want to buy. I said, no, I, I just want to give it to you. So when he came down, if you look at that video on my Facebook, on my personal Facebook page, it's him standing in my kitchen playing the same song in 2017 when, when this all went down, when I started to get ready to move down here. So back to the, the point of this is like, you know, you just never know. You know, I'm, I'm 62 years old now, you know, a couple of my friends I've lost. And so when, when somebody pops in my head, I either try to text them or email them or give them a call or whatever. And I, I just think it's a good way to be as we get older because you never know. Thankfully, with all the great musicians I played with and all the great friends that I have, some of them, I just had a party at my house on my porch and there was basically three quarters of the people I've known since I was in elementary school. Oh, wow. People, you can't lie and you can't, you know, I don't, I don't know if we can say anything dirty here, but yeah. Um, Okay, I, people, you can't bullshit because they they know you since you were in like first or second grade. So I really try to keep in touch with them, and I'm kind of like the go-to guy to you know to have the party or to my old house that you were at where the studio oh, was yeah. was that place, you know. And it continues down here now. We I, I call it the porch parties. I even have one of my friends actually got a wooden sign made and it says, uh, "My porch where my dysfunctional friends get together." There's a chalkboard at the bottom of it. People can write stuff. 
So every time people come down, they they write stuff on the chalkboard, and I have I have pictures of different things. You know, like the, the last time two of the girls that I'm, I'm friends with since first grade wrote, uh, "I don't like to be told what to do unless I'm naked." He <laughs> 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 also John Lennon lyric on it when they were here one night, and so mm-hmm. it, and I have it in my living room because I don't, I don't keep it outside because of the weather. It, it's really cool. So I think it's important for us to to keep in touch, you know, and with and, and I and I run into people like I'll be on the boardwalk in Ocean City or I'll be like walking around town down here in Ventnor where I live now, and and somebody will go, Joe, and I'm like, yeah, and they're like, I, you recorded my band in like 1987. That memory is like etched in their head, and some some people I actually remember, you know, but other people I you know I I don't quite remember until they tell me what the band name was, and that kind of strikes a key, and then, and I can go ah oh, that was one of the grunge bands, or that was one of the hard rock bands, or that was one of the songwriters, or some you know wedding band demo that I did or whatever. It's interesting to run into people like that and keep in touch with some of those people, and, and Facebook has helped that, you know, with with keeping together with people and reconnecting with people like my cousins, you know what I mean? Like my cousins I haven't seen in years. They live up in Yardley and all over the place. And now I know how many grandchildren they have. And we've actually met up. I was playing in a heart tribute band, which I can get into a little later for nine years. And I was playing up in New Hope and my cousin's wife got six of my cousins and their siblings or not siblings and their, and their spouses. And my aunt who's still alive at 92 years old, my mom's last living sister, my, my parents, everybody's gone. And my aunt came to the gig at 90 years old. So with Facebook, I, I don't even have their phone numbers, you know, until now. So I, I just think it's, for me, it's always been important about relationships. And I believe music is all about relationships. And I believe owning a studio is about relationships and you know it's just a part of my life at least i mean i i know a lot of people just have a handful of friends and they like it like that i i I, like i could call anybody three o'clock in the morning if i was you know not feeling well or or, you know something was up or you know i could my friends that they moved to california and they're they're all over the country and i i try to keep in touch with them on a on a pretty regular basis because i just think it's important to keep those friendships you know, whether they were business at first, you know, and then became friends and then, or, you know, like, like you and I kind of, um, and kind of lost touch a little bit, but we, we did kind of, you know, email each other every once in a while and stuff. So I, I just think it's important to keep in touch, you know, when, when that, when that thing pops in your head about, Oh, remember that, remember that night at the studio and I'll call that guy. My friend Brent, he lives out in California. I grew up with him. I, I worked at his grandmother's bookstore on the Atlantic City Boardwalk when I was a teenager. And um, I called him on his birthday and I was talking to him. And we were just, we used to go to Maynard's in, in Margate back in the day when the age was 18. And uh, every time I happened to go to Maynard's, you know, to meet somebody or something, I take a picture of the sign and I just send him a text with just the picture. And he writes me a story about the night that we were there because he's really good he's always been a, a really good he should have been a novelist i mean he's a really good writer and he'll, he'll write some crazy story that's something that we did one night you know while we were at maynard's or at, at the at his mom's house or at the at the bookstore you know where i worked for his grandparents and stuff and it's it's just really funny so and it's it's great to to have those those connections i agree and, and it's funny you should mention that gig you did a few like three years ago because just was it two weeks ago? I'm in a Beatles cover band, and uh, that's what the Hockner. I, I read it. Yeah, and so this was the first gig at, with this band that we had ever done in the Philadelphia area, and it ended up getting a lot of my relatives out and cousins that I hadn't seen in a long time. 
And then this former piano uh, adult uh, piano student of mine from when I lived down in, in that area, I hadn't seen in probably 22 years and her daughter's like fully grown and the whole thing. And I think I taught her when she was four years old, you know, and now there's a pretty good chance that my wife and I are going to go down and have dinner with them sometime this year. There you go. Yeah. It's because of the music. Well, me having the house at the beach now, I mean, not that my friends are taking advantage of by any means, but I mean, they have a, they have like a really great reason to come down and spend the day on the beach and stay overnight. I got a guest room, they can crash, whatever. And uh, I have these little porch parties, like I'm saying. So it's, uh, it's, it's kind of giving them a little more, uh, like I see them a little more often, uh, obviously more in the summer, but I do have a lot of friends that enjoy the the fall and the, and the spring down here. Cause it's beautiful. And um, so that, that's been nice. You know, cause you know, my, my old place, I didn't have any neighbors. I didn't really know my, I talked to my one neighbor like four times the whole 38 years that I lived there. <laughs> there was an, on the other side, it was like 200 feet away. There was an older woman that lived there that I used to like pop in and check in and on, but it wasn't like in a development or anything like that. And when I moved down here, I'm in close quarters, you know, like my landlord's house is like six feet from mine. You know what I mean? And, and there's, there's neighbors that live down here year round that I have that I've gotten to be friends with. And it's uh it was, a, it was an adjustment at first, but I really like the sense of community down here and that I've gotten to be, you know, I'm a pretty easy social person. So I, I got to know some musicians down here and then know some, just some neighbors from walking their dogs. And I have dog treats on my porch that I give to their dogs and stuff. And it's like a, um, a, a change in life that's, that I, I, I kind of, the first month having people walk past my sidewalk and being able to see in my house oh, yeah. until I had to close the shades on that side of the house. But, you know, it's like, like I have like five or six neighbors on my street that are year round. So we, we and during COVID, we looked after each other. We'd go to the store and we'd pick up things in, in quantity and I would drop off a care package to one neighbor or two neighbors, three neighbors. And then the next day there would be cookies that my neighbor made with her daughter so it, it was much different than living where I used to live, even though I had the seclusion and I didn't have to worry about noise or anything like that, which I, you know, it's not, this, this is just a mixing room that I'm sitting in and, and I can cut, you know, acoustic guitar and, and a vocal in my guest room. But again, you know, I can't cut a drum set in here, you know, I mean, I probably could in the wintertime because nobody's really down here, but it's not really that kind of facility. So it's, it's been interesting. To, and I, I always wanted to live at the beach and I'll get into why I sold the studio once, once you get to that part of the interview part, but sure, just, yeah. it's, it's just neat to like have this little sense of community that I feel down here. Cause it's, it's a little town. I mean, you've been down here, yeah. you know, I'm working as a stage hand uh, in the union for uh, hard rock and uh, casino and Tropicana and boardwalk hall work on the weekends. Uh, my skill set got me into that. So I've been doing that uh, as well. I've been meeting, you know, a lot of people doing that that are, you know, everybody, they're either musicians or, you know, they got some, some tie to, to music when they're, when they're doing that kind of work. So yeah. I've met a lot, a lot of people that way. So I, I feel like um, my, my landlady who's here during, only during the summer, she comes down from May till, till like October and her husband comes down the weekends. Um, she, they, they call me the mayor of the street because like, I, I just to be friendly with everybody and it's just funny that i you know i, I just enjoy the the town and you know, having people in close proximity is is uh is something that i didn't experience like i did in cherry hill where i grew up because i was in a neighborhood but when i moved into my house where you were or where my old studio used to be that was just you know pretty secluded on a main road and i didn't really know too many people in the town itself you know except if i ran into delhi or something or yeah very different life yeah and for those people you don't know uh, out there 
Ventnor is a town uh, in one of my favorite areas of the world, which is the Jersey Shore. is very near Atlantic City, which is why Joe was talking about the casinos and doing that work there. Uh, but I, I, I remember feeling so welcomed in your place when I started working with you that I can see why you'd be called the mayor. You know, like you're just you're very easy to get along with. And you do just, you just seem like you're you. Yeah, I mean, you look practically the same, you know, and you act this, the same. I'm sure I'm no life, you know, probably plenty of changes and things like that. But you're, it's a, it's a reassuring feeling to be like, that's, you know, that's Joe. And not to mention, you know what you're doing, which is, which is also a good thing. Thank you. I mean, I, I kind of prided myself on, you know, when I started the studio, I was recording myself me and my my old partner dave close and we're, you know, we were trying to get signed and everything and when we bought some extra gear i was working at a music store back in cherry hill then and uh i was spending all my paychecks on equipment and we started you know somebody asked me hey could you record my band hey could you record my band and that became like a sideline to us getting signed and then once i hit my 30s and you know the couple bands that i was in did showcases and stuff like that and things didn't really pan out i kind of stuck my head in my studio and then dave left the, the business in 93 and um i always wanted to treat people in the studio as i would want to be treated as a musician you know like i i, I wasn't trying to be that that engineer that's uh clinical engineer you know i wanted to i wanted to get a vibe i wanted pe- people to be comfortable you know get a good headphone mix like you know be calm with everybody and i mean it was for myself too because that's the way i am you know, i don't want to be in a stressed out studio environment when i have been you know but i mean i don't enjoy that when it's when it's it's uh tense you know I, I, people don't play good people are arguing you know you, you get well i always used to say it's it's 50 of the gear and 50 percent psychology of the session mm. after like you know zone in on who's the guy that or the or the two people that really have the vision and the other people you know like the drummer that wants his kick drum louder than everything else i mean you gotta you gotta be able to talk to him to a certain way and you know deal with people's personalities some people are you know they need a pat on the back and the other people you can say dude that sucked can you do it again like that really sucked can you do that again and, and they can take it you know where other people if you say that to you crush them you know so you have to that was my thing of trying to weigh people out as a, as a producer and engineer of what I could say and suggest to them without causing too much friction. And I think that might've translated to you as me being like easy to work with, you know, because I, I, I was listening to you guys, you know, trying to find out what you want. My job is to make it sound like what it kind of sounds like in your head. And then also guide you to make it sound like that by the, the tricks that I learned over the years that that helps you get to that point that the musician might not actually know when they come into the studio well and and it's i mean it works because this is stuff that we then i'll throw this in now because why not and then we're gonna go back a little bit i think i did four or five projects in your studio and the first one was was this one which i never actually really released it's it's uh it was uh it had the song standing standing there and it was from uh, that band that I met doing Grease, and they they used to be a band in the '80s, I think, called the Chasers or something like that. I, I don't fully remember, but they were kind of the session musicians for it, and it was such a great experience. And listening back to material from over 25 years ago that can still sit alongside anything else that I've done since then, and my favorite being this one, uh, URP, which was uh-huh. really 
That was the one. You remember? You remember that? Yeah. This was the one that Bernie was like, "This, this is what we're going to shop." Yeah, I remember the cover. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And you played acoustic guitar in one of the tunes, Zuzu's pedals, and just there's a lot of stuff in there. And that was I was in an, th- another band called Ape Cafe. Right. I, br- I brought them in to do this, and then we came back and did the Ape Cafe stuff too. I remember and, that. And, and I did something with another guy that I collaborated on for songwriting, this guy named Mike Knowles, I think it was. And that might have been it. I can't remember. But I think the reason why I kept coming back was because you gave me the space because I've got too much going on up here, you know. And I, when I'm thinking of, oh, the guitar part should do this and whatever, you know, and I've got three harmonies going on and whatever else is going on, that I could figure all that out in a safe space and feel also like there was some guidance there and not that it, that you weren't just sitting back going like, yeah, whatever you want to do, man, that's fine. That's cool. You know, like you were always engaged and really kind of guiding. In my earlier days, I did work at a couple others. Well, I went to KJM recording school. KJM used to be up in Gladwin, PA. And I, there was a, I remember I was working at H.A. Winston's as a, as a waiter and I was reading some music rag and there was an ad in the back saying, you know, uh, take a hands-on 24-track recording course. And at this point I had, you know, a four-track recorder, you know, like a real real. And I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to get signed and I'm going to be, you know, getting a record deal, I should know how the big studio works. I, I really wasn't thinking about owning a studio. And I went there and befriended my teacher who was one of the owners and it just blew my mind you know and and that's when I came back to my house and started buying more gear and I was worked like I said I, w- I was working at this music store and and people started asking me to record them and and that's how the hours and hours and hours and the 600 and something bands that I recorded over those years just flowered into that you know I mean that really wasn't my intention I really wanted to you know be on tour and be making records of my own material and um i still like i said i still chase that well into my 30s but um i was i was also really busy with many different genres of of, of rock and and hardcore and metal especially a lot of metal down in south jersey mm-hmm. and took me to a place that you know after, after doing it for a number of years I, I i felt really comfortable helping people with their with their music and trying to achieve what they're what they're hearing you know, and trying to, trying to, again, trying to take that approach of if I was this guy, like I I didn't want to be, I I had a couple, what I meant to say is I had a couple experiences where I went with bands I was in and we had some kind of recording time through our management company or something like that. And the engineer was just basically, was was that good? Did you like that one? Like, Mm -hmm. no, no, like that was hard. I mean, you know, yeah, like I said, you have to be careful how you say it to who you're saying it to, but it was just like, they were just like, hit and record and, and, and stopping and just going, did you like that? And, and they had, I, I don't know, I just didn't feel like they were interested in what, in what I was doing, you know, or what the band was doing. And I, and, and I was already engineering people. So I was kind of like grinning my going, like, you're going to let that slide. You're not going to repunch that. I can hear a punch there. I can hear a, a noise there. I can hear the air conditioner blowing like, what, Oh, it'll be fine. Well, you know, that, that we'll fix it in the mix bullshit. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. I always cut my tracks so as you were playing along, you didn't hear that mistake. I would fix that mistake right then. If you blipped the line or if you blipped the guitar part, let's fix it while we're here, while we got the tone. You go back two weeks later and you try to match the tone, you end up cutting the whole track again. Yeah. So I would fix as we went. And I wasn't, if you remember, I wasn't scared to punch on my analog machine. I would punch in little, oh. now it's so easy with the Pro Tools, you just like punch it in and edit it. You know, I thought, why would you want to hear 
when you're when you're working on material why would you want to hear a crappy version you know even if it wasn't EQ'd or if there was noise in the background you know like a, like a fix it in the mix kind of thing and it, it's not really making you play that good so I, I was always trying to make the rough mix or the monitor mix or whatever you want to call it the working mix sound as good as possible so you felt like you were playing to a solid track as you layered the other things on top which i think made for a better product i mean some of it was just dumb luck i'm not saying that i was you know eddie offered or you know like you know some famous engineer but i was like in the trenches is is how i learned like in the trenches of, of bands that only had 500 bucks or bands that had like two or three thousand dollars mm-hmm. you know or five six seven thousand dollars something like that on a bigger project but i you know i kind of learned under fire how to how to like do the the psychological part of the session getting the sounds having the right equipment you know talking to the people correctly and, and i you know that's why my place was in it and my place was kind of like a middle of the road in the in the price range so that was a good thing there was like crappier studios that were like little had like two pieces of outboard gear and a, and a four track reel to reel or something like that and then there was like something like KGM that at the time was like, or Sigma that was like, you know, a hundred, $200 an hour and two inch tape. And I had a 16 track, one inch machine and it kind of made it affordable. So I was kind of like, I became my, my partner, Dave Close had a lot to do with it in the beginning. Um, we kind of became that studio that everybody kind of did their demos or their, or their release. And then when CDs came about, I started doing like some releases for labels and stuff, especially with the hardcore and the, and the rock stuff where a lot of stuff went out on seven inch and, and 12 inch vinyl and stuff like that. And it was just a matter of being in the, in the right price range at the t- at the time that people could come in and not really worry about the clock as much. Yeah. And that's such a valuable thing for musicians who most of us don't have a lot of money, you know, <laughs> to know you can come in and get some kind of quality, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny you say you mentioned Sigma because right around the time that you started Why Me, which I wouldn't have known you back then, but a little, maybe slightly after that, I recorded a project at Sigma because my dad knew of it because he's been in the business for decades, you know, and essentially blew like every last bit of money that my dad had saved up for something. I don't know. He was so pissed at me for, you know, not for very long, but he, cause he knew it was a passion project, but I was like, from that point on, I was like, wherever else I go, I don't want to feel like I'm on the clock. You know, right. I want to be able to afford it, but still come out with something good. Who did you work with at Sigma? Uh, somebody named Joe as well, but I can't remember who, his last name at all. You didn't work with Mike Tarsia, the, the son. It was Joe Tarsia. Yeah. You worked with Mr. Tarsia. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's who I worked with. That's who my dad knew. Yeah. Because my dad knew Bernie's boss and Bernie's boss knew him and blah, blah, blah. So. Uh, right. Um, what, what was that guy's name? Lloyd Remick. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Because yeah, I, I, I called Lloyd about a contract and he, Bernie had just joined his firm and he kind of, you know, because Lloyd was so busy with bigger things. He kind of, you know, shuffled me over to, to uh, Bernie, which was good because I, I love Bernie. But uh, yeah, Mr. Tarsia, I, I've done a few producer panels with, and he's, you know, he cut all the OJs and got yes, Billy and, 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 you know, the spinners and, and, and then Mike, his son was an assistant engineer and then became an engineer and, and was an amazing mixer. Um, unfortunately, he passed away last year and Mr. Tarsia is still alive. He's like in his late eighties. He's, oh he's not, God. not in great health, but, um, He's, he's doing okay. And last I heard, he's a very, very nice man. And I had the pleasure of being on a producer engineer panel a couple of times with him about 
10 years ago at the Cape May Singer Songwriter Conference. Such a nice man. And he told me about some stories about cutting the spinners and OJs and all the PIR stuff. And I, it was, and I worked at Masterwork Recording as a mastering engineer for 12 years. And we had all the masters there and we actually digitally archived all the master tapes because they were getting old and falling apart. And we got to like, there was 137 albums between me and the owner, Pete Humphreys. We split them in half and did them. We had the old EQ notes from when they were cut to lacquer. So we were able, and and still the same equipment. So we, we actually made the record sound like it was and then took a little creative license. So I told him that we had done that and he was he was interested in how, how we did that because uh, he recorded all that stuff. So uh, yeah, Mr. Tarsi was a really nice guy. And his son, Mike, was an excellent mixer. Like I said, he, he unfortunately passed away last year. Um, or, or he was young. I mean, he's not much younger, not much older than me. And uh, I thought you might have worked with when you mentioned that you worked at Sigma. I thought maybe you would have worked with Michael. But um, when you said Joe, it's like, I mean, you 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 work with the that was the guy, that was the dude. Wow, man, yeah, that was a hell of an experience. You know, it was only it was uh, one song. It was just one song. Yes, and then I went back in 1990 and worked again with him, 9091, something like that. And uh, that's, I think that's when I ended up spending all my dad's money. <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was a great experience, yeah. Now, you said that you opened Why Me in 83? Yeah, around there. I mean, we made it an official business in 85, but we had been, you know, recording ourselves and starting to record some other people. And then a friend of mine who was my keyboard teacher growing up, who then became my accountant said to me, you know, you and you and Dave are like, you know, starting a, a little business here. Why don't you like open up a business? So we actually made it legit and registered it with the county and all that stuff and and, and redid the room the way it looked when you you were there. We kind of like reshaped it because it was just really like a rehearsal room with a little recording room. And then we had like a storage area, which turned into the guitar area and then the live room. We cut the corner off of it and made the, the control room that five-sided shape that it was. And how, probably how you remember the, the place. And um, that's how that started. You know, it just kind of mushroomed from there. And, and there was like, I, I called it the trees like there was branches like there was rock guys there was metal guys there was the hardcore guys that i got i, I did a ton of hardcore records i must have did 150 hardcore records over the years just from like three bands like it oh. all for all that they heard that record and they called me and when i go to allmusic.com it's it's all these releases of all this screaming aggressive hardcore stuff that i really wasn't i didn't really know about that music one of my guitar players in a band i was in was a teacher teaching guitar and he had a, a student that was in one of these bands and they I said well they went to another studio and they weren't really happy the guy was mixing it like a like a Tom Petty song or something like that and they wanted the guitars loud and the kick drum loud and the vocal was buried and distorted and so I just kind of listened to what they wanted and gave that to them and then that spurred this whole gigantic thing and you know and like we said earlier the south jersey area with the galaxy and all that stuff i was doing all those bands that were trying to be like cinderella and britney fox and all that stuff they were trying to emulate that yeah the typical you know wedding bands and cover band demos that i i, I did as well but uh you know it's just kind of like the place to go because of the price point like we discussed earlier
talking about like the hardcore stuff and i know the second recording i did with you this one the band that i was working with at the time had a harder sound and it was what i wanted you know and i feel like it's one of the top you know handful of recordings i've done that really did capture what i had in my head and when i went on to another studio and then another and then another there were elements that carried through there because I learned them working with you in the band and, and that, but there were, there were certain cases working with those other studios, other people where it never quite got that, that beef that I wanted, you know, the, the, that oomph, like it took, it took a while to get back to that place where I felt like that, that's the, that's the punch I needed that song to have. You always had that. Well, thank you. Like I said, I always tried to put myself in that musician's head, you know, cause I am, 
you know, a songwriter and a musician, and I, and I just tried to see what their vision was and then try to get it there as close as I could, you know, without, you know, sometimes you just had to tell somebody, look, it's impossible to bring the kick drum up that loud or, or you can't, you can't have your guitar solo that loud. And, you know, that, that was my goal was to try to have them walk out and say, for how much money we spent and working with this guy, he really did a good job. And uh, I think most of my customers, I, I think were very satisfied with the, with the results budget wise. And for me getting into the project, and I, you know, I would pick up a tambourine when they weren't there and shake a tambourine track. I would throw an extra guitar track down or I, you know, I, I'm a keyboard. I would play Hammond on a track for them. I'd say, Hey, I'm hearing a little Hammond on the chorus here, you know? And, and if they liked it, they liked it. If they didn't, we'd just take it out. But like, you know, I, I was always trying to make the song better and make it, you know, make them happy with with what they were leaving with because, you know, it's everything to the, to to the band. I mean, it's this this is their demo. This is the one they're going to get signed with. This is this is it. If I don't I don't make it now, I'm going to have to get a real job. You know that that whole. Yeah. I, I always say the young guys were easy to work with because they were enthusiastic and listen to you because they didn't really know and what i call the midlife crisis records in a good way the kids are grown and they, they they have money and 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 they come back in the studio and they're so happy to be there at 40 and 50 and 60 years old recording music and the, it's the guys that were in their 30s that were like at the end of that we need to get signed on this demo and this is mm-hmm. they were the ones that were the kind of the hardest ones to 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 really get satisfied it was never big enough it was never not never i had to work harder to get it big enough and fat enough or or whatever they wanted because they were having a little desperation kind of uh part of their life because they were feeling like if this didn't happen you know this probably isn't going to happen and i've been there myself so i know what that feeling is yeah yeah no that's difficult oh boy does it bring up a lot i i know that the last project i did where i thought well i i need this to be i need to get to you know i was in my 30s you know and once that didn't happen and i shifted into other things and filmmaking and stuff like that but i really had to get away from it and when i went back to making music it was the first time that my enjoyment wasn't blown by the angst and the and the pressure and the fear i just could enjoy making the music for the music the two records that you mentioned earlier that i put out this cream circle spiders is kind of like a heavy you know like more like an alice in chains drop detuning kind of thing with a female singer that i decided on the last minute she did a great job that was done in the late 90s and then i just remastered it when things became easier to put out on you know and digitally i put it out in like 2009 or something like that and people really liked it and then bill mattson who's you know he was in the dead end kids back in the day and jeer he's always been a great friend of mine he's got a smoky bluesy voice and i've written some tunes and we talked and one night and called him or something he goes we should really do something together and i always wanted to do it so i put that record together and i kind of pulled a couple tunes from my an old band transferred them to Pro Tools and then got rid of the original singer with his permission and redid it with Bill singing and then we added more tracks to it and then there were some new songs that I had done that he really liked and that's the Mats and DeLuca After All This Time project and like you were saying at that point you know I was in my 40s or 50 I don't know and I I, I just did it because I wanted to do it it wasn't I, I wasn't trying to get signed I was hoping to maybe get some um, licensing or something like that from from some of the which didn't happen either but I'm still working on that but it took as long as I wanted to 
you know, and it took, a, he, he lives up in Lancaster, so it was hard to get him down all the time, but, and I had some really great musicians, Dave Post played on it, Richie DiCarlo played drums on it, I had all these great different soloists, and I played most of the rhythm guitars, because I usually write on guitar, being a keyboard player, which is weird, um, and then added hand piano and all the other, other all the other stuff, strings or whatever, and, you know, produced the stuff, and it was really satisfying to do something at that point where it wasn't desperate to get signed and i was already kind of set in my life at that point you know of about in the studio you know yeah i mean i think there's a there's a value to certain kinds of pressure it's kind of like the diamond you know analogy whatever but i think that the the truest version of somebody comes when there's no outside influence when they're just i'm doing this because that's what i think i feel i hear just for me you know and i've heard that stuff it sounds great too uh, I'm put uh, yeah, I'm gonna make sure I put the links down for everybody to hear that. And that stuff that you then you wrote all of those songs. Yes, awesome lyrics, music, everything. Like especially the creamsicle spider stuff. I mean, I, I there's layers of guitars to get it fat, you know, and and that the kind of grungy kind of thing with a lot of bizarre. The keyboards are, are not as prevalent in, in my normal stuff because I'm a keyboard player, but there's some more textural kind of stuff going on with that record. In the Matt's and the Lucas stuff, there's a lot more Hammond and piano. And it's it's more, you know, traditional bluesy rock compared to the Creamsicle Spider stuff. And a lot of my friends, are, they're like, man, that Creamsicle Spider record. What, uh, Carolyn, the singer, Carolyn Jordan, her name for Carolyn D'Antonio Jordan. She killed it. I mean, she, she really yeah. made it great. And I had a bunch of great people playing on that as well so uh, i was always i was telling this story to a friend of mine in my early days i was in this band called versailles it was my first band and we were like 10 years too late for prod rock you know we were doing that um very bizarre you know time signatures and stuff like that and and the other bands that i was in you know that i, I was trying to get signed with and stuff i was always surrounded by musicians that i thought were way better than me like prolific musicians but I was the main, main the main writer, you see, on all this stuff. So, like, I got lumped into this thing where people said to me, "Oh man, like you're you you are you're such a great keyboard player. You're such a and I, I, I feel uncomfortable because I, I I'm really I know where to put my my colors. You know what I mean? And I know how to do it. I'm not Rick Wakeman. I'm more of a Greg Allman kind of slide it in there and get it in there nice. It, it, it's funny how being around the the caliber of musicians that played on my records and played on on some of my sessions too i had them come in on sessions <clears throat> people always i always saw people maybe i'm not giving myself any credit but i always saw people thought that i was a better musician than i really was but i think it was the musicians that i worked with liked my material and my arrangement skills and and, and stuff like that 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 really was my I guess that's more of my talent than actually being a virtuoso speedster, knowing every scale. Like I, I just write the stuff and I, I'll figure out the chords later. Like I, I just found a chord on my guitar and I'm like, I don't know that that's a G minor seven flat nine or, you know, I, oh, mm -hmm. that is minor seven flat nine. How about that? Like, it's just cause it sounded cool, you know? And that's what I wanted for the, that's, that's what I was hearing in my head. So it, it, it's funny how I, 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 I always kind of like I ran into Reggie Wu, a good friend of mine who was in Heaven's Edge, and he was like, "Oh, you 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 guys were like amazing and all this." Stuff. And I was like, "Reggie, I'm not. I'm really not that good." You know, it's like <laughs> <laughs> because I was around Dave Close and Richard DiCarlo and, and David Lennon and, and these people that I work with that and, and Craig Steinman and that made my song shine, which made me look like you know I was a better player than I really was. But again, I'm probably not giving myself. I'm, I'm being a little self-deprecating, but. I always felt like that. I was just, I, I felt like I was really blessed to like be able that, that 
that caliber of musicians like liked my stuff, you know, and, and they, they, and they wanted to be involved in the bands that I put together. I mean, I think, yeah, I think the truth's probably somewhere in the middle. Like you probably are better than you give yourself credit for, but being around people like that, you know, can the fact that you can do what you did among people with that caliber means that however you want to rank your virtuosity, you know what you're doing because, because you know, your colors, when, when to play something, what to play, whatever the chord is, no matter how you, you know, end up, uh, you know, classifying it later on because your ear is telling you, this is what goes there. Right. Well, yeah. I think it was the production thing of years of sitting behind the console doing that and then, you know, dissecting records that I loved and seeing yeah. what it was, you know, it just led me to that. And I was just happy that these people wanted to be involved with me. And um, the, the thing the Bernie was shopping for me, I, I, I met this guy through an old girlfriend and he came in and I started producing his stuff. And he was kind of like a Lenny Kravitz rock and roller. When Donnie walked in the room, it looked like there was a fan blowing on him. He was a rock star. And Bernie, <laughs> Bernie, I, I sent him three mixes. I was, I was, I, know, I went up to his office for a contract thing and I, I had a couple mixes that we were doing of, of the record and I gave them to him and he immediately, I got home and the phone rang and he, he's like, who the fuck is Donnie V? And I'm like, I want to meet him. So we, we met up at his office and Donnie walked in with his scarf on and his hat and everything. And like he was shopping and stuff. Like Bernie was jumping up and down. Unfortunately, the guy had a, a, a abuse problem and um, it never really panned out. But we, we showcased at CBGBs. I really thought, I, I'm in my 30s with these guys that were in their 20s. And I was like, oh my God, this crazy guy, this this crazy person, not, not crazy, this really talented, unique guy after all these years, it's going to be the guy that gets me a record deal, you know, or a part of a record deal. Sure. And fortunately it fell apart because of his addiction problems. But ah, geez. Do you feel like a lot of, so, you know, just to refresh everyone's memory, you, you had your own studio for like 35 years or more or, or something like that. Do you feel like during that time, there were a lot of those kind of near, near hits? Yeah. I mean, looking back at it, I mean, I, I want to say I enjoyed working with 95% of the people that I work with. There's a, a few that you know I could give or take, but not everybody was a, was a star, but you know, I, I, I treated everybody like, you know, the same. I, I, I worked just as hard. I, I actually had to work harder with people that weren't as talented, you know what I mean? Cause you had to yes. get that, pull that performance out of them. And, and, and you knew it really wasn't going to get much better at a certain level. And you had to just kind of, settle for it and then i worked with some people that were just amazing that i thought were gonna do great things and you know i you know i worked with a few people that that did eventually maybe not in the project that i worked on but like eventually did something else that that got them to a different level again it was it was basically the the price point in my studio and and the and the people that were trying to live the dream like we did they were trying to trying to get that to that level and uh it was my job to try to get them to that level and i i took pride in in doing that you know that's 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 all i could really say about that i mean you know i, I don't want to say you know anything bad about any of my clients because everybody was great and I, I don't think you you'd find too many people that that say hey joe ripped me off or joe you know didn't bob on my project they're they're talking i still run into people like i said and they're, and they're like oh man i still play my record and it still makes me happy you know that i did that back whatever and it's how you just said it to me you know, you, I'm, there are all these years saying thank you for that. So what what really happened at the, at, towards the end, 
besides coming out of a bad relationship, I saw my numbers starting to dwindle uh, over like a five or six year period as technology got cheaper and, and stuff. And I just kind of saw the writing on the wall and I was playing in this heart tribute band, traveling all over and making, making some good money doing that, which was fun for about nine years. As I saw this decline in the studio business and had a little debt happening and stuff like that. So I, I just decided, you know what? I moved down here and one of my friends, Andy Lalasis, he's one of the best bass players down in Atlantic City down here, introduced me to a guy named John Mulhern. And he had a studio in a church that he was the trustee for the church. And there was an attic space, big attic space that was in the back of over top of a um, meeting hall, not in the church itself, but it was connected to the church. And 17 years prior he had he had like built a studio up there so andy introduced me to him and we, we got talking and it was like 10 blocks down the street from my house i could i could walk there so he called me one night and he said are you good at editing and i was like you yeah, know i'm pretty good and, he, and he's like i need to cut out four bars of this song and and just move it take it out and move the move the the, the ending closer and yeah. meaning there was like four for nothing before that he wanted to go right out of a chorus right into the verse and there was like four bars of nothing before so it took me like right so we got in the conversation where's all your stuff i said it's all in storage and uh he said well, why don't you just bring your stuff here and you can just use the studio and we'll split the money 50 50 and i was like really so i brought i, I rented a van i went up to the storage unit got everything out of there he let me kind of rewire i put my compressor racks and I brought my mics and he had some beautiful, he, he's a jazz guitarist guy. He's been around, around here forever. He's from Bristol originally, but he was playing for the Merv Griffin shows down here, all the revival shows. He was in the golden nugget pit band for 16 years. He's like in his late sixties now. And it kind of revitalized his studio a little bit where he was actually excited again. Cause he was kind of like, you know, in his sixties and he really wasn't seeking out work. And I started bringing some rock acts and people, my old clients were starting to come down and cut stuff. So I would cut everything there, bring it back here in the room I'm sitting in and mix it on my own system because I was more comfortable mixing here. And that went on for two and a half years. And the Methodist diocese that this owned this church um, decided they were going to combine that congregation with the Marty Congress congregation and sell the church. And they sold the church and knocked it down. So the studio was closed. I sold most of my equipment to a studio that's up in Merchantville in a lump package, like microphones, drum sets, guitar amps, all the heavy, you know, big stuff. Wow. And I kept my, uh, I have a warm audio uh, Neve clone that's two channels with three band EQ. And I have two universal audio LA610s, hardware versions, not not software versions. And that's what I use here cut acoustic guitars and, and, and vocals or whatever I cut in here, tambourines and, and stuff. And, and then people will send me tracks. And I, the songwriter, Jeff Erling, that I've been working with, he'll send me a, a guitar and vocal on a video. And he's got really good timing. And I'll send it to my buddy, Rich. He plays the drums. He brings it back to me. I send it to him. Yeah. He approves it. I send it to Dave Close. Dave Close plays the bass. He sends it back and, and so on. I put my part. Jeff comes down at last and sings the vocal and plays his real acoustic guitar and then he goes home to shelf on pa and then i mix it and i send him mixes and we go back and forth a little bit higher for this a little bit lower for this a little more bass for that and the only thing i don't really like about that process i mean my job is to make it sound like we were all in the same room but nobody's in the same room and if somebody does play something that's not quite exactly what the client wants i have to call the drummer or call dave or whatever and say you know it's really cool but he wants you to walk in the in the chorus so mm -hmm. then two days later he recuts it sends it back to me 
I stick it in the mix. I send it to the client. And it's like we were sitting in my old studio or sitting at John's place. It was called Jam Studio One, the place in Ventnor. You know, I would just say, hey, Rich, can you can you try going to the floor tom in the bridge instead of the ride symbol? And he would just do it. And the client would say, oh, no, I don't like that. Or, hey, that's great. I love that. Or, you know, hey, Dave, can you can you walk in that one part? And and the creativity in the room with with the caliber of musicians, again, using these great guys for studio musicians would make the songs better. Now it's, you know, usually they 80 percent of the time they nail it and, the, and my client loves it and not being in the same room. So that that's been a little bit of a challenge. But, you know, since I moved down here, there's been less of that. I stopped playing in the Hard Tribute Band and I got the stagehand job uh, in 2000. Right before COVID, I, <laughs> I started doing the stagehand stuff because of my skill set. I, I got into the union quickly. So I do that on weekends and uh, I make really good money doing that. Um, like a union gig. You know, I, I'm, I'm kind of at peace with that. I had a great run for 40 years and, and played in a million bands and, and, and did a lot of great things, met a lot of great people, worked with a lot of great people. And um, I'm kind of at peace that I'm, you know, I'm not retired by any means. I'm going to be working until I'm 80. I didn't have no 401k for recording and, and being. <laughs> no. um, but I, I really, you know, I was talking to a friend just recently and they were like, don't, don't you miss the studio? And I think, yeah, but I don't miss the, the wedding band demos and the, you know, some of the things I, I would do just because people would call me and I knew them and stuff. And I would rather work with, you know, clients that were like writing some nice songs and really doing some stuff. And I, I, I haven't really been seeking it out too much because I don't have a room to cut in that's near, you know, uh, like, a, like I had when, when the studio down the street was, was happening. That was so great that I moved down here and I was like, all this and I was like, Oh my God, I have a room, you know, like, this is yeah. great. And, uh, and some people were just coming down and cutting rhythm tracks and doubling their guitars and then taking the tracks with them and then and then going home to their home studio and adding their vocals or adding their solos and stuff and cutting stuff that they could do with their smaller system, maybe tossing it back to me to mix or sometimes they'd mix it themselves. And so that was kind of working out for a while. But after the studio closed, I, I kind of came to terms with I needed to find a, a different outlet to make a little money. And that's what happened with the stagehand thing. And um, I've been working on some of my own stuff occasionally, you know, um, I've got a couple songs. I got one up here I hadn't listened to when I, I turned on the stuff just so, you know, it looked like I had something on. In the room. Cool, yeah. Nice. <laughs> so I, I hadn't listened to it like a month and I forgot my friend Kurt had played a, an extra guitar track on and he came down one Sunday afternoon and, and liked the song and, and played a, a, a couple guitar tracks on it. And uh, so that's, that's kind of where I'm at. I'm just kind of like trying to live a little bit of a different life. It's a little more chill down here and, um, I, I've come to terms with that it's really hard to, you know, unless you're in a lucky situation where you just, you know, recorded a couple of those big bands and, and you have a name. I recorded all those bands and, you know, there was a few with some names and I, I did have a reputation of doing what I did at that level that I was at that we discussed earlier. But I, I don't have those big feathers in my cap, you know, where these guys that are still making big money, you know, like John Lorgalgi and, you know, uh, Joseph Puig, you know, the, the big producers that are still doing stuff, uh, Lenoir and stuff like that. I, you know, I never, ever got to anywhere near that level. And uh, I always wanted to own a huge studio like KGM and, you know, that never really because of, of situational stuff and, and, and money. But I've kind of come to terms that it's, you know, it, it is what it is. And I had a nice run. Even my sister said to me on the phone, we were talking the other night, she's like, it's not like you didn't try. It's not like you didn't put everything you had into it, you know, and you had a really 
fun. And now you've landed at the, at the beach where I always wanted to live. If you ask any of my older friends where, where Joe would end up, it was the beach and you know i love it here I, i've got a great situation here with with my landlords being terrific there my, my landlord's son works for nfl films as a film and music editor and he's a musician oh. and when i moved into my house my landlord said to me so are you going to take one of the bedrooms and turn it into like a, a mixing room like matt has up in in pennsylvania live and i'm like well jerry i really wasn't going to tell you that but yes i am yeah right right <laughs> my room up that i'm sitting in he came he would come up on the weekends and take pictures and send it to his son uh, who's in his thirties. And then I, Matt came down to visit, you know, and and he came up and checked out my gear and it it was just like, how cool is this? I mean, his wife, you know, my my landlady cooks me Italian dinners on Sunday. I'm I'm like kind of family. And uh, like like I said, I I love a a number of my neighbors and I'm just trying to, um, you know, life you're always reinventing, and I'm, I'm I've, I've reinvented, and I've come to terms with with some things. You know, I never got married, and never any kids, so I don't have any of that. You know, college tuition to pay off or anything like that. So, you mm-hmm. know, I'm just trying to live. Uh, I'm not going to say live my best life because I hate that. <laughs> but just trying to like you know make it happen and be happy and enjoy the beach and and. Uh, make some music occasionally here and make, make a little side money and, and uh, do my thing. And it's, it's exciting at the, at the casinos because I get to build the stage. Like, you know, I took apart Edgar Winter's keyboard rig at the Ringo show on Saturday night. Wow. You, know, so, you know, I've worked, awesome. I did the Sting show. I've worked Kiss, Guns N' Roses. I, I don't get to meet them or anything like that, but you do get, get to catch the end of the, if you're doing the loadout, you catch the last three songs. And if you do the load in, you, you know, you're emptying trucks and, and building the stages and doing stuff. So it's kind of cool to see it at that real pro level that I wanted and you wanted to be at to see what happens to make a show roll into town with nine semis mm. of motors and lights and trusses. It's really cool. And I'm, I'm enjoying it, even though it's physical and stuff. It, it, it's, um, I lucked out a friend of mine suggested it and I, I got, I applied it hard rock and then I applied it Tropicana and then I, I lucked into a job at Boardwalk Hall. So, and I'm trying to get into more, the more casinos that you work at, you get hired at the the more the union can staff you at. Like if, like if there's all at Caesars, I can't go to Caesars because I'm not a Caesars employee, but if there's a hard rock or Tropicana show, my union guy can call me and say, can you work Saturday or can you work Friday or can you work Thursday night or whatever? So I'm trying to, they call it being badged. So I'm trying to get badged at more casinos. So I have more opportunities to work to make more money. Nice, nice. You know, there's unfortunately not enough time for me to get to everything I wanted to, to comment on there, but I will say a couple things. One is, I'm glad you're still working on music. And and a lot of this resonates with me because I've been through a lot of it at the thin the things I do. And even though, you know, things may not have happened in the way I wanted them to, I, you know, you keep at it because you love it. And I had to, I had to self-teach a lot of, of what I do now just for really financial reasons. And also I, I have ideas. I like to execute them, but this year has been a year of retrospection and a lot of like a re-releasing old material or never, never before released material. But next year I'm working on a new album already Good. And I would love it if you, you know, we could get together next year sometime and and you can mix it or something like that. You know, like it would be great, you know. Play some keyboards on it or something. Send me the tracks and I'll you know play some parts or you're a keyboard player that I don't need to I am, it. but that's it, you know. I've you know, I, I I've done so many projects in the last eight years that have been just me that I'm just looking for more collaboration now, especially after the pandemic. It's like I want to work with people. So 
I was going to say the pandemic has changed a lot of things. I've noticed that, you know, the, the people that I know that, that are getting back to playing in cover bands and, and doing stuff, everything's seven to 10 now and the bar closes at 12. Like it's really changed the whole, there's no more, the only bar down here is in a casino or wonder bar on Albany Avenue that stays open till four o'clock in the morning where we go have drinks after we do a show, we eat at four o'clock in the morning, but everything closes, you know, you know, in the wintertime down here, you know, all the, pizza places and whatever they they have winter hours and if you're thinking about getting a pizza you got to think about it like eight o'clock on a monday night because they, they stopped uh-huh. delivering earlier but the pandemic has changed a lot of things wrote music where people are doing fantastic things with you know putting together you know these like what we're doing tonight uh zoom yeah thing where it looks like everybody's playing and they're really faking their parts but they they somebody somebody put the song together and and did it or the or, or there's ones that like some of the established musicians did some really cool things where they have like a percussionist in brazil and they uh, they've I've got seen those, yeah. playing guitar in san francisco and somebody else and, and everybody's you know it was it was really fascinating and it was a very but it was a isolating time and it was a time to there was a lot of re- retrospective and a lot of my decisions were made during COVID because things were so slowed down and the studio shut down because I couldn't bring anybody into the studio, into the church, you know, they, they were closed down. Right. I wasn't allowed to bring people in. Finally opened up a little bit. I did a few projects and then it closed. So it really did change a lot of things and maybe look at my life. And yeah, you know, as, as we're getting older, I mean, I, I forget how old you are, but I'm, I'm 62, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm in good health. Thank God. And, and, uh, I just want to, you know, enjoy my life and, and, and keep in touch with my friends and, and, and continue to sit in here and mess around with some guitar ideas and, and keyboards and, and whatever, write some songs and do some things. I, I kind of got a little lazy creatively, but I'm feeling that like in the winter time when it's not so beachy and you want to get out to the beach and do all this stuff you know, and you're in the house that I'll, I'll probably get back to like finishing this song that's up on the computer screen right now (laughs) well i hope you do and i hate to cut you off but they're gonna cut us off anyway this has been amazing thank you so much for this time so good to see you uh, so good to see you we got we got to stay in touch thank you for inviting me i i I feel like i'm back in the biz you know for a minute damn right you never left take care everybody
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 